Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And we got some emails. Yeah, should I start with one from Kai? We we read a link that he sent us last week. It was with regards to wisdom, and he sent us a Bible verse. Job. Job, yeah. He just wanted to thank us for sharing that. Uh, he also said, regarding your guest's theory that children are born with a sense of right and wrong, um, I have found that this is not always so. And here he elaborates. I was brought to Kenora, Ontario from the Faroe Islands when I was very young. My mom cared for a neighbor's child during the day. This child frequently bit me. Uh-oh. No one knew what to do about it, so my mom wrote to her dad in Torshaven. Several weeks later, the response arrived. I was told to bite the offending child, which I did. Ooh, I mean, he, that, never bit, he never bit me again. It's also biblical, right? Eye for an eye? The golden rule. Yeah, I suppose that connects to the study, which was about whether kids think it's okay to do one thing or the other, but only up to a point because the study then... If that child had been part of the study, they, that child would have found out that God says, no, you can't do that. And the child would have disregarded that because he or she knows innately almost, at from, least that was... From age four. Yeah. That w- what is right and wrong. And right. God can't change that. Right. Another email. You got an email? Yeah. yeah, it's a long one. I'll kind of, kind of shorten it. Um, this was on the topic of uh, veganism mm-hmm. and why we, we looked into why... For every one male vegan, there tend to be about two or three female vegans out there. Mm-hmm. What's the gender gap? Why, what's causing that gender gap? This is from Sunny, who wrote in to say that she, I believe it's a she, is glad that we're talking about vegans and vegetarians. She's been a casual vegetarian for almost 15 years. Um, and she says it's kind of funny to that, that one of the questions in there was about if my partner were to suddenly go vegetarian or vegan, would I find him or her or would I find them less attractive? Mm-hmm. And Polish people... Men and women said, yes, less attractive if they yeah. were to do that. And significantly, right? 29% or 26% somewhere in there? 25 in mind, but it was significant. And yeah. she flips the script and says, uh, from her perspective, it's the opposite. If she's with someone, they're both vegetarian, and then the partner starts eating more meat, that's, not, that's less attractive. And then she continues with that thought to say, you know, where is the study on, um, on that kind of disgust? Because from her perspective, watching someone eat meat elicits feelings of disgust. Mm. And the thing is, Sonny, I found it. A lot of times people write into us and, and I don't, there is no study. There's a study on this. When was this conducted? 2022, Frontiers in Nutrition. And it's called The Relationship Between Meat Disgust and Meat Avoidance, oh, wow. a chicken and egg problem. So what was the chicken and egg problem? It was, is it that vegetarians, because they became vegetarians or vegans, is it because of that that they're disgusted by it? Or were they more naturally inclined to be disgusted by meat, and hence they wandered toward vegetarianism and veganism? What did you find out? They took 40 people. Yeah. These 40 people did veganuary, and not perfectly. Sometimes they lapsed, ate a little meat. And uh, what they found out was with these 40 people, going vegan for January, mostly vegan, was predictive of increase in meat disgust Afterwards. So they did a before and after comparison after they were more disgusted by people who eat meat? Yes. Okay. Or, or meat itself, the whole, the whole process. The thing, yeah. I've heard anecdotes from other people that kind of corroborate this, but that is something that happens as a result of going vegan or vegetarian. Right. And sticking to that topic, we got tons of emails, tons of YouTube comments as well. Uh, one of my least favorite why are you people spreading so many lies? I thought DW had some integrity, but this is just sad. People feel really strongly about food. If you want to go to our YouTube channel, it's DW Podcast on YouTube. You can see how I replied yeah. to that long sequence of comments. 
Yeah, you did a lot of replying. Good well, job with, with links to well, studies? I mean, you are what you eat, right? So, so you are possibly know, criticizing people by even mentioning the vegan diet? Well, I, Criticizing their desire we, to eat meat? Yeah, we tried, to, we, tried to, I, we tried hard to say, look, we're, you and I are not vegan, Gabe. I, we just we, we saw this no. at, at lunch just now. We're not vegetarian, Mm-mm. and so we're not promoting lifestyle, but you should be aware of the fact that you benefit from other people doing this, uh, whether it's the climate or even animal we- welfare, etc. So another story or another study that has just made headlines around the world connected to, in this case, vegetarianism or a vegetarian diet. I'm going to read some of those headlines because they are way over the top, and that's why I'm talking headlines about Headlines about the study. About a new study, okay. about a different study. Okay. Here's one from The Guardian. Hunters-gatherers were mostly gatherers. That one's, that one's pretty calm, pretty uh-huh, tame. Yeah. Then the Daily Mail. Forget hunter-gatherers. Early humans should be known as gatherer-hunters, which is just terrible to say, gatherer-hunters, because they were mostly vegetarian, study claims. Okay. And then we're going to go to the mass circulation newspaper, The Sun, also for a British newspaper. Yabba-dabba-do-vegan. <laughs> Cartoon caveman Fred Flintstone would have eaten veg instead of meaty Bronto burgers, say experts. Okay, so they analyze, what, they check the diets of people who lived yeah. hundreds, of, hundreds of thousands of years ago? Or? Uh, not, that's, so there you are. These headlines misinform because that's the image I had in mind hundreds of thousands of years yeah, ago. Yeah. No. Anywhere from 6,500 to 9,000 years ago. And not everywhere. Way up in the Andes, oh. next to Lake Titicaca, and they looked at twenty some bones up there. Twenty four bones. Okay. So, how would you figure out what these people are eating? There are a couple ways to do it. You could look around and see if you could find remnants of the food. You could find animal bones and then carbon date that probably. Or um, well, if you yeah, you, it would it should be connected to the same time that these people were yeah. alive, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. You could find uh, remnants of those foods. It could be seeds. It could be grains. It could be whatever yeah. meat products. You could also do. Um, well, look for paleofeces, which is something we talked about a couple years back. Uh, it was regarding a salt mine over sure, in they Austria. Can be fossilized, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there in Austria, three thousand years ago, amazingly, people were eating blue cheese and drinking beer. That was the headline. Yeah. So that's another way of doing it. The other way is to take those bones and look for isotopes. Certain isotopes they're connected to nitrogen, they're connected to carbon, and they're like they're like a barometer or like a like a thermometer for how much how much meat you're eating at that time. Or how how many vegetables? And mm. specifically in this case with the vegetables, it was a, a, a root, kind of a potato. It's called a tuber. In this case, maca tubers. But you can imagine potatoes growing around. Yeah. People were eating a lot of these according to this isotope analysis. In fact, it was anywhere from um, that was at the top. It was anywhere from. It was anywhere from seventy to ninety-five percent of their diet is what the researchers concluded. Yeah, but again, we're talking about one group of people in the Andes Mountains? Correct. It, it feels a l- difficult to, to draw too many conclusions based on that one group. That's, that's 100% correct. And also, this is a very specific time frame. Yeah. Six and a half thousand to nine thousand years ago. So it's possible that these people, there are a couple options, but one of them is that these people, they, there could have been a lot of meat around, walking around. Um, they had vicuñas, which are like these llamas or alpacas, but smaller. Yeah. They had already wiped out all these incredible, just like a couple thousand years earlier, um, all these incredibly huge megafauna sloths yeah. that were up, weighed up to, I think, four tons, if you can imagine that. Um, they had elephant-like, mastodon-like animals. They, they were all gone. Then it's the next wave, possibly, of, of animal reduction. And, and now they're kind of shifting into agriculture. Maybe they were just disgusted by the meat. 
I don't think. They, yeah. Well, it could be. Yeah. Right? That, or that. Uh, I mean, taking down a mastodon. I mean, imagine all that meat laying around all the time. It could be religion playing into it. There are a lot of different options. It, we humans, in, in a, in a, I don't. I mean this in a good way. We're pretty lazy. We take the easiest food option there is, no so doubt. long as it provides most of the nutrition, we don't get terribly sick of it. And so at that, it might, it might have just been way easier to eat the root. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, this does not tell us what Fred Flintstone was doing. By the way, I, I I've never thought I'd Google that, but. When was he alive? In, in that show, he was alive about 12,000 years ago, even though there's, they have a pet dinosaur. That doesn't make sense. They died 66 million years ago. Yeah. Um, but in, Dino, right? Dino was the name, yeah. Um, what, this, what this says, in a very, it, all it says is that way up in the Andes, 6,500, 9,000 years ago, 24 individuals, over the course of 3,500 years, hmm. mostly ate tubers, it seems. And that we should kind of understand this as part of the transition toward agriculture. That's what actually happened in that study. All right. Well, thank you for the clarification, Connor. Yeah. How do you recover from work? <clears throat> Exercise. Exercise. It's an activity that you do that has nothing to do with work, that keep, takes your mind off work. Once you're done with it, you feel a sense of mastery and psychological detachment. <laughs> and the next morning, if you were to write in your diary about how you felt, you would feel recovered because of what you did. So long as it wasn't too strenuous, like yeah. if I really push myself to the limit, then I might be like, man, I'm gassed and now I have to go back to work. Mm. But yeah, mostly. This was a study on how to recover from work using a very specific activity, video games. Okay, yeah. Playing video games. They, they found 65 different employees from 19 different countries, had them fill out diary entries at night after playing video games mm -hmm. and the next morning. And they were looking for those two things, psychological detachment at night and in the morning feeling vigorous or the feeling of being recovered, feeling hmm. recovered based on what you did after work. So this activity here is playing video games. It's not running around like you do or, or physical exercise. And they found, I mean, I'll make this, this short. I and mean, this study is about 25 pages. If you want to check it out, you can online. But it's essentially if you play video games after work, it will make you feel more recovered the next morning. And it has to do with feeling psychologically detached, taking your mind off work. Once you're finished with work, you come home, you do something that takes, allows you to forget about it, but also gives you this feeling of mastery. Mastery. So, yeah. Because they, they didn't just have people fill out diaries about whether they could, that they have forgotten about work or that they felt that they, they, they mastered something or learned something new. They also wanted to look at their passion for video games and what that meant for how much they played. They chose gamers. They probably, they must have. That was they chose a, gamers. Okay. That they was chose gamers. You had to have a passion for video games, but they also looked into that passion. So I guess in the, in, in the passion literature, you differentiate between people with harmonious passion and with obsessive passion. <laughs> harmonious passion is, is like wanting to play video games because you want to learn a new experience. You want to. You want to do something, like almost live something vicariously through the video game, learn something new. Obsessive passion is when you just need to play. Okay. You have to Addiction. play. Addiction. Addiction. Like something that you need to do to, to make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. Out of You're not in control of it. Yeah. If you had this harmonious passion, it meant that you played less. And also that, that time that you played, it gave you this sense of mastery. I was going to say that play less is very important. Because right, because, I, okay, they, I, they also measured sleep. That's and, exactly the problem. Right. There are so many, myself yeah. included, 
my wife would say the same right now. She's stuck in a game that is keeping her up until one in the morning, mm. pretty pretty regularly. It 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 time it dilates time, it changes time. Suddenly you look at the clock and it's it's 10 p.m. Then you look again and it's one. Yeah, and you're like, what? Why did I do this? I got into this game where you're 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 driving a truck. You're taking logs and, and metal beams from point A to point B through the Yukon Territory, Alaska. It took a long time to get those logs around, right? And I, it, the t- it would hit 1.30, 2 a.m. And then I was feeling, I, I, I want to get this, I want to get these logs to the Yukon Territory. These, I need, di- I need to deliver. Digital logs. I need to deliver these logs. But, these bites of information. But I, I have to go to sleep. Yeah. But I wasn't in control of my destiny. I had to. So there you wouldn't have been the harmonious. You I would was have obsessed. been the, the obsessive. I was obsessed. And, and if I had done a diary entry the next morning, that it would have, I wouldn't have felt vigorous. I wouldn't have felt like I'm ready for work because I would have been depleted. Anything to say on these studies or any others? We've got a great email about uh, from a guy whose calves are cramping in the night. We're not going to read it now, but just know, Derek, that um, I don't know why, but I'm with you on that one. That happens to me, and I want to find the answer to help you, but also to help me. So that one is restless leg syndrome. No, no, no. You no? wake you wake up in the night and you've got a, a cramp in your calf. Cramp in the calf. That's what he's got. I've, I get that once in a while. Anybody else out there with a cramp in the calf? Yeah, what, what is going on? Yeah. SU at DW.com. Are you happy is kind of the question. I, I think it's more about your well-being or if you're satisfied with your life right now, sitting here, and, listening to this. And how old are you? What, what, <laughs> what phase of life are you in? Because those two things coupled together is kind of what we're going to be talking about today with Suzanne Brooker, who has done a gigantic study on subjective happiness. Science Unscripted. Hi, my name is Suzanne. I'm a researcher at University Wittenherdecke, and I've recently published an article on subjective well-being across the lifespan. So, Suzanne, you've done a study on when people are happiest or, or, or what phases in life they are happy and what phases in life they aren't happy. What, what did you find? Mm, so, for life satisfaction, we found that people seem to struggle during adolescence. So younger people from age 9 to age 14, for example, decrease in their life satisfaction. And then from age 14 onwards until 70 years of age, people increase in their subjective well-being or in their life satisfaction slightly, but steadily. And from 70 years onwards until the end of life, then life satisfaction decreases again. And you looked at those nine-year-olds, and, and what, what did you see? Are the 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13, up to 14, their happiness decreased throughout that phase, or, or what happened? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So their happiness decreased or their life satisfaction decreased, which is probably because this is a very um, busy time. So... Um, becoming an adolescent and being in puberty is a very intense time for young people. 
And there are also a lot of biological changes going on that affect their happiness or how they feel about themselves. So, I mean, we might be talking about something as simple as, as pimples, as acne, the, the scourge of teenagers, young teenagers everywhere. Yeah, but what nine-year-old gets acne? Oh, no, it starts. At, it can start at nine. Does it? Yeah. I, I had some acne going on. And then you've got these, you know, you've got new body odors coming out of that, various okay, parts of your body, sure, right? Yeah, You're not yeah. very, no one's happy with well, that. there's hair coming out of places that yeah. there wasn't hair before. Yeah. So age 14, it starts to rise. And basically your data suggests that from age 14 all the way to 70, life satisfaction remains either stable or increases. Slightly increases. Yeah. Um, it's not a huge increase. But it stabilizes and possibly because people also stabilize their romantic relationships during that time, for example, or um, their financial situation stabilizes, at least on average, from young to middle adulthood. And also many other mostly positive life events or life circumstances characterize this period. Um, for example, starting your first job, but also uh, moving in with your romantic partner or becoming a parent, for example. So that's also something that can be negative, of course. But overall, people seem to be satisfied with their lives during that pe period. And you found no swoons in the 20s or in the 30s or the 40s that would reflect anything along the lines of a midlife crisis or something like that? No, you found none of that? No, no, we didn't, which was surprising because there is other research suggesting such a midlife crisis. But the problem of that research is that it's mainly cross-sectional research, which means that participants are just asked once about how happy they are. And then you accumulate a lot of research that is asking different people at different ages. And then you see such a U-shaped curve, but it's actually not a longitudinal trajectory in terms of following the same people across multiple years. And this is what we've done in this study. So we used longitudinal data. And with that, apparently, this U-shape doesn't seem to be the most obvious trajectory of subjective well-being or happiness. I'm just having a tough time imagining that your data can be true and this is infused by my own <laughs> personal life experience which is not a midlife yeah. crisis that's not where my mind goes it's to the relatively hard early years of your career and if you've had children of of raising those children those were i'm not going to say those were dark times that's an exaggeration those are hard you're waking up multiple times throughout the night you're again you're early in your career you're you're, you're stressed you're you're trying to do good work despite the exhaustion um and I, I fortunately i feel i'm coming out of that i'm i'm i am out of that and yet there's no mm -hmm. yeah i would have thought my life satisfaction was down at that point. But your data suggests that somebody like me, if you tracked me over time, it would stay stable. My, I, I would keep saying, yep, my life satisfaction is an eight. It's an eight, it's an eight, it's yeah. an eight out of 10 across the board. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you are mentioning a very important point. So one other line of my research uh, studies major life events and changes in, for example, subjective well-being, but also feelings of loneliness surrounding such major life events, like becoming a parent or marrying or getting divorced. And what people typically think is that these major life events must be very impactful for their subjective well-being or for their feelings of loneliness. But then when we look at such longitudinal data, and as you just said, ask people every year or even every month how they feel, then they report rather stable affect. And in the retrospective, they still think that they must have changed during that time, that it must have been horrible for them. But apparently people seem to adapt or at least respond in questionnaires when getting asked about their subjective well-being um, in different ways. And maybe also because society expects us to be happy when becoming a parent, for example. So people don't want to admit then that they might have um, some, yeah, downsides in their lives during that period. Um, and these retrospective assessments of how we feel might differ from those we see when we ask people directly after the major life event or even multiple times surrounding such life events. That was Suzanne Brooker, who has just changed jobs. She was, she was at Cologne, the sport university in Cologne, and now she's in the town of Witting. I think. I don't think I know where that is. Or Witten. Sorry, Witten. Witten Herdica. Okay. That's it. Somewhere Not close Vitten. by? Witten. Sorry. Yeah, I got a lot of noises here. You got a squeaky chair. Now, the, um, let me put the number at 30. Age 30. Mm. When I'm looking back at age 30, that's not, that's not the best time for me. There's a dip. I'm certain of it. Oh, we're going to get personal here. We're going to hear the story of Connor Dillon's life right N now, right? No. No. Not at all. It's just the reason I think about it, you just turned 40. Yeah. And one thing I've heard people say, uh, more in Germany than anywhere else, is that your 40s are better than your 30s. Hmm. And I'd never, I'd never thought that way. It, I was always sure it was the opposite. But the logic behind this German way of thinking is that you've gone through the major upheavals of your life, most of them, hopefully. Uh, you've the beginning of your career, uh, if you're going to have a long-term relationship, that, and then if you're going to have children, then that, and you've gone through that in your, mostly in your early 30s or in your 30s all the way up to 40. Again, all of these phases can happen at any time, but as a trend, hmm. your 40s may be better than your 30s. And it's just odd to me, it's surprising to me that, her, that the data doesn't show any of that. You're, yeah, you're speaking generally there, and I'm wondering whether specific events have a gigantic impact on your life satisfaction longitudinally going all the way through through to the end of your life because if i look back at my 40 years now uh there was a, a day when i was 18 um october 15th 2001 i was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and to this day that but uh, more than anything else that has affected my life satisfaction my feet my subjective feeling of happiness or feeling okay nothing else has had an impact like that. And I'm wondering whether those specific events have more of an influence than, than the general trends that you're talking about right now. Yeah. The thirties, the forties. Yeah. What, what about, what if events, you know, finding out you have a chronic illness or losing a loved one or something like that, it's just so hard that you'd never get out of it. Yeah. yeah. 
I guess we'll leave it there for now. If any of our listeners out there have an opinion on this, something that's very different from what we've just been saying, more in line with the data, less in line with the data, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in this one. Because Everyone should have a say on it, right? I, well, if this, this, I was going to say, if this show has a purpose, it's to make people happier. <laughs> we can't do that, probably, but it's, it's nice to think. We can at least think, inform. Yeah, it's nice to think about and to wonder about, because I think we all would like to be happier. I think I can say that with some, that's uh, uh, what I'm looking for. Um, sense of certainty? I can say that with some sense of certainty, probably. SU at DW.com. DW. Made. For minds. And we are joined in studio today by our colleague, Anna Sako. Anna, thank you for joining us. Hey, Anna. Thank you for having me. Hi. Real quick, Anna, you are one of the people involved in an award-winning... Wildly successful. Yeah, wildly successful YouTube series or video series from Deutsche Welle. It is called Sex and the Body. Yes. I've watched a couple episodes. Just real quick, what in general, what is Sex and the Body about? It's a series about uh, the female uh, sexuality, basically. So we touch on every taboo topic from breasts to libido to um, vaginal discharge to sex in pregnancy. And these are topics that uh, are th these videos get translated into dozens of languages and yes. they reach people in countries where this kind of this kind of education doesn't happen necessarily in the way that it should. So very informative videos. And you have a third season just out. It, it's three episodes long. This is your shot. Tell people around the world Con why they convince us to watch it. Yeah. Oh, OK. Three episodes. Wait, what are they about? Yes, um, three episodes. So um, the first one is about female libido. Like I think a topic that is interesting to us all. Um, it's by Lea Albrecht, which is the creator actually of Sex and the Body. It um, deals uh, with the myth that actually only men want sex all the time. Yeah, men do sometimes want more sex, but this is only true in the early dating phase. When you actually look at long-term relationships, um, a lot of guys tend to underestimate how much sex their partner actually wants. That's what science found out. That's one of the episodes. Let's go to a second episode. Yes. Um, the second episode would be um, the one about PMS. It's by Anna Katas and PMS, you might have heard about it. It's premenstrual um, syndrome. Um, this is actually a real condition. Like it's something that a lot of women experience. So um, the frustrating thing about this topic is that we actually don't know. Science still doesn't know why it occurs and how we can really treat it. Um, but we show a couple of options that might better the situation. But I think um, the most important takeaway from this episode is that we shouldn't do PMS shaming, if I can say that, because um, it has a huge impact on a lot of uh, women's life, everyday life. So, um, yeah, so everybody should take this on board, men and women alike. Sure. And the third topic you worked on yourself. So this is yours. You know all about this one and you know how to convince us all to watch this episode. <laughs> yes, I wrote and directed the episode about sex during pregnancy. We started researching and when we thought we started thinking about what lies actually beyond that question. So what do people or viewers really want to know with that question? They, they think they're going to hurt the baby. Exactly. The main question is, or the <laughs> elephant in the room is, can a penis poke a baby yeah. <laughs> during sex? Yeah. So we answered that question in a accurate graphic way 
<laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it. Very good tease. That's a very good tease. Now people are going to want to look and I see wanna, how accurate. I want to know. Again, I've seen this, these in the past. That there are a lot of interesting props used to represent what could or could not happen in this case. Let's just leave it there because that's an excellent cliffhanger. But the, just to be clear to everyone out there to convey this information accurately, the answer is no. You're not going to hurt the baby. The answer is no uh, because. There are a lot of protective layers in between um, the furthest point a penis can reach and where the baby lies or the fetus lies inside the womb, actually. And so for all of our listeners out there right now who are, are, are probably already have their phones out or something out to try to figure out where to find this, where do they find the Sex and the Body video series? Yeah, you can find all episodes on dw.com slash sexandthebody, all one word. Yeah, dw.com. Go there, get informed, share it with people who you think could benefit from that information. There are a lot of, especially young people, who have questions that to us adults seem almost comical or like, you're like, what? What's the question? No, like we said before, wildly successful because you must have realized in the process that there was a gigantic need for this information about female sexuality. Yeah, because there are still a lot of topics that are largely taboo, even now in the 21st century. And the special thing or the special view that our series gives is it comes from a female perspective on all of these topics. Um, yeah. Anna, Go and have a look. Anna Sacco. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for popping in to, uh, to let people know about a really interesting video series that we hope all of you watch. DW. Made for Minds.